Hello, welcome to A Word on Plays. My name is Amy Gang, your host. This month, we're talking about Dutchman by Leroy Jones, or later in his life, Amiri Baraka. This month, I'm talking with Ben Simmons, who is a local sound designer and actor. And if you would like to support him currently, he is in Green Stage's Three Musketeers, uh, which is always a fun summer afternoon. So get out to the parks and enjoy that. Uh, I'm going to be taking a break. This will be my last podcast for a while. I'm going to be in Edinburgh, so hopefully I can bring some goodies back from Edinburgh when I get back in September, October. Um, So look forward to the start of my next season. It's a season, I guess, in October, and uh, along with a new logo. So much excitement. Uh, Thank you so much for your support this season, and have a wonderful summer. Hello, and welcome to A Word on Plays. Uh, I'm with Ben Simmons right now, and we're talking about The Slave, or not The Slave, Dutchman, by Leroy Jones, uh, who actually changed his name to Amiri Baraka at some point. Uh, So, yeah, I was confused for a second on that. But uh, how's it going, Ben? Oh, it's going really well. Thanks Good. so much for having me, Amy. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming. This is, uh, full disclosure, the first time I've done this this podcast with somebody that I've never met before. Uh, That's fine. It's my first time being on a podcast, so we can just jump into this together. It'll Yay. be great. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about uh, Dutchman. Okay. Please. All right, so uh, let's start with a plot synopsis for people who maybe haven't read this play. Shame on them if they haven't, of course. (laughs) Um, So Dutchman is a play um, that starts off um, on a on a subway on a subway car. Um, There's a young black man who's sitting on the subway car. He looks out the window and he sees um, a white woman who may or may not be smiling at him through the window. It's a little strange and disconcerting. And then over the course of the play. Um, she ends up on the subway car with him. They start to talk. Um, she may be trying to pick him up. He may be flirting with her. It's all a little undefined and a little strange. Um, and then over the course of the play, they start to talk, they start to connect, and then they start to become very much at loggerheads in a very (laughs) kind of upsetting way. Um, and the play ends with one of the best three-page ranting monologues I've read in a long, long time um, <laughs> from the man as he confronts uh, this woman who's been um, basically putting the screws to him for the last for the second half of the story. Um, and then to cap it all off, we have a a tidy little murder where she <laughs> kills him in front of everybody on the subway car. And all their fellow passengers help her hide the body and dispose of it. Don't they also start help? Like, they all stab him, right? They yeah. all come together and... It's very Murder on the Orient Express. Spoilers for anybody who hasn't read the Agatha Christie story. <laughs> but yes, that's exactly what happened. Go read the Agatha Christie story. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a, it was a very short play. Um, you have two, basically two characters. Uh, and here I am way far away from the microphone. Uh, so you have two characters and 
And then, like, a bunch of characters right at the end, which, uh, I have to say, like, as a producer, a sometimes producer, like, oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the same problem you get with a lot of Carol Churchill plays, where it's like, mm-hmm. I have two speaking roles, and then I have 14,000 people who have to be in this for the background visual in order to really make the emotional weight of it hit home. Yeah. And... <laughs> In fairness to uh, Jones slash Baraka, the the emotional weight of the play and the ending is incumbent on there being lots and lots of people. Right. And for them to be participants in this story. Um, I hadn't actually read this play since I read it in college, um, freshman year during my survey of theater history. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, and I may be wrong about this, but I think there have been productions of it where in order to solve that problem, part of what they did was... They actually sat the audience in the chairs as if they were on the subway car with the characters. Interesting. And so the you know it was rather than playing it in the round, it was played on the strip, sort <laughs> of. And you had people sitting on either side, and then the actors would play it kind of in the middle as if everyone was sitting on this subway car with them. And that's at least one way to kind of, as a producer, work around right. the fact that you have to have in the second half of a you know. 90 less than 90 page script right. a whole host of characters show up who don't really do anything except kind of be participants in this story mm-hmm. which i mean i guess is the point of of immersive theater <laughs> but yeah i read that and i was just like oh that would be hell to put on um to clarify leroy jones um, who, his birth name was Everett Leroy Jones. Everett Leroy Jones, uh, and then he changed he, his name to Amiri Baraka. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we can just call him Amiri Baraka. I I feel like that's what he wanted to be called. So, um, but yeah, and you have two characters. You have uh, Clay, who is obviously like the embodiment of like. I feel like he is supposed to be Amiri Baraka. I, it, it's his kind of like mask or you know avatar, I guess. Yeah. Um, we can call him a Mary Sue if we really want to. I suppose, <laughs> but it seems a little out of place. Um, and then you have Lula, who is a typical white woman in the seventies, I guess. On a well, I'd say it's it's, it's weird to think because this play was published in sixty three, sixty four, mm-hmm. I believe. So it's and it's set very much in. New York in that world um and so it's in that it's in that weird transition point where because when we think about the 60s mm-hmm. we're really thinking about you know 67 to 77 and this is right you're thinking about the Vietnam War exactly exactly you're thinking not... about the Beatles and this mm-hmm. this is not Beatles 60s this is mm-hmm. um I don't know how many people have read uh Malcolm X's biography but this is you know er, this is early this is like before white people even went to Harlem really just at the start of that when those cultures were it was starting to be okay for you know a black man and a white woman to talk to each other on the subway and potentially get involved in something in a public place Mm -hmm. and that's part of the tension that I think really underlies the script is there's this question of is this okay what we're watching is it not okay are they both willing participants in this story are they not are, what's the power dynamic? Is it equal? Is it not? And it certainly shifts throughout the course of the play, which I think is part of what makes it really, really interesting. Okay. Yeah. I um, 
I mean, that, that's because it was like just starting to be like, I don't even want to go so as far as you to be like, oh, it was just starting to be accepted. But like, this is like, maybe the hip culture was like, okay. But you know, my mother would have been not my mother. Mom, I love you. <laughs> I know you're progressive, but like people in in a in kind of a middle aged role would probably have been scandalized and upset and grossed out and like don't do that in public. Um, because we're still fighting for the rights of interracial couples. Why is this hard for me to say? Like I keep searching for words. We're still fighting for the rights at this point for interracial couples to be able to get married. It's, it's still legal. In I said, well, what was it? Just last month was the anniversary of Loving v. Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been exactly now 51 years um, as of, I'm going to say, as of June 12th, that it became illegal across the entire United States for states to prevent um, black and white people from getting married. Because yeah. that was up until... What would that have been? That would have been 67, I believe, is when it was passed. Um, up until that point, there were 11 states in the United States where you still could not get married as an interracial couple. Mm -hmm. um, specifically uh, in Virginia, black and white, because Native Americans and white people were technically allowed to get married because of a whole host of issues that was, <laughs> you know, um. apparently made sense to them in the early 1800s when they wrote those laws. But, you know, it's kind of just gross now when we look back on it. Right, right. It's it's hard. It's hard to look at plays that are obviously a time capsule in and of themselves as, like, I mean, obviously this play is not going to have the same emotional weight that it had in the, in the early 60s when it first came out. Um, and it's hard to look at those kinds of time capsules and see them with the same eyes that the playwright wanted you to see them at, with. Um, but, but yeah, so you have these two characters, and I, I won't lie, I had a lot of trouble reading this play, because I see where Clay is coming from, and I see Clay's emotional arc, but I look at Lula, and she's just this sex object, I guess. I was very upset with, like, just the flat nature of Lula, um, and, and the questions that that brought up to me, because this is not a representational play. This is a very presentational play. We're, you know, obviously in this other world. Um, the question that came up for me was, like, to what extent is it okay to make Lula a flat character to give... And you're going to argue with me, you're going to say Lula wasn't a flat character, but I feel like she was a very, like, she was a tool in this play. And she's giving Clay his, uh, his emotional weight. She's giving Clay this, this arc. Um, and it, and Clay's arc seems important and it seems expressive and I, I really love Clay's character, but like what how is that okay like to what extent i mean is it okay i don't know well let me um 
<laughs> Let me see if I can dip and dodge around you because I don't think I'm going to go where you're expecting me to go on this. <laughs> um, so first of all, I agree with you that she is very flat. Mm-hmm. But I would counter that I think Clay is not as three-dimensional as you think he is. Okay. Um, I think that part of what... You know, you're right that we're, we're living in a presentational... Um, representative world that's mm-hmm. it's you know it's it's half on that line of myth i think in the stage directions at the top of the play they even specifically say there should be no real set there like right. the windows are not there you can sort of hear the sounds of the train and the trolley but you can't actually see it there should just be the seats mm-hmm. and even in the second half when the rest of the trolley car starts to fill up i think the seats are supposed to come on at that point up until then it's just supposed to be the two seats that uh, Clay and Lula are sitting in. Mm-hmm. So we're in a very we're in a very abstracted place just right. to start with. Um, and I think you're right that Lula is first and she's first and foremost a symbol. That's part of what she's there to be and part of what she's there to do. Um, but I think Clay is also that. Um, in when they're describing him, he's um, he's described as wearing and Lula makes fun of him for this as wearing a buttoned up three button suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's supposed to have his, you know, he's, he's, he's tried to like straighten or flatten his hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, you know, he's, tr- he's, tr- he's wearing a tie, even though it's, you know, the New York summer. And I don't know if anybody's been on the subway in a New York <laughs> summer, but you do not want to be wearing a three button suit and a full tie outfit. It's, it would be awful. Mm-hmm. So he is, he's very much, I think, supposed to be this representative First of all, he's yes, yes, he's Baraka's mouthpiece character, but he's also supposed to be representative of this repressed, buttoned-up um, black experience in America right. in the early '60s, and not—he's not really a person. I at least not from on my reading of the story. I think he's very—he's supposed to be this stand-in for, um, you know, but yeah, all this. that buttoned-up repressed rage that then comes out at the end of the play in that big monologue that he has um so i think that they're they're both they're both living in the world of symbols and they're not trying to be characters because i think the closest we get to maybe clay being a real character lula has a couple of lines where she talks about um you know his mother and his friends and he's constantly saying things like how did you know that about me how could you possibly have um like, how could you know? I would never have known that. And she says, oh, you just look like the type of person who would have a friend named that yeah. or who would be doing that kind of thing. She even thinks, she thinks of him as a symbol. She doesn't think of him as a person. Mm-hmm. And we as the audience, you know, it's one of the things that's nice about theaters that even when you're being presented with characters who aren't fully fleshed out or who are just symbols in and of themselves because they're being portrayed by people, we can see them and we can empathize with them as people instead mm-hmm. of just as symbols. So... I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about what this play is doing. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting perspective because I definitely, because of his giant monologue at the end mm-hmm. and the huge, like you can tell he's, it's just building up in him and he lets it off and, and it's just so cathartic and then he dies because of it. Um, I guess when, because we're going on the emotional journey with him, it feels as if he is more of a fleshed out character, mm-hmm. even if he is still this symbol. That's, yeah. I, that's a very good... Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I just... the It's just... It's hard to watch, especially in, like, the age of feminism, 
a woman and the apple. The apple thing was just like, oh. <laughs> well, again, speaking of symbols. So, again, yeah. for people who maybe haven't read the story, um, when Lula comes into the play for the first time, uh, she's described as eating an apple nonchalantly in her hand. Um, she eats the whole apple over the course of the first scene and pulls out two more, hands clay one and, you know, takes the other one for herself. Um, the symbolism obviously being Adam and Eve, Garden mm-hmm. of Eden, forbidden fruit, fruit of knowledge. Um, she constantly throughout the play is pulling out things about clay that she couldn't possibly know, but she says she's a, con- a consummate liar and is always constantly lying. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's, Baraka's working with all of this um, biblical imagery and ideas and kind of tugging and remixing those a little bit, I guess. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's drawing on them, but he's not leaning on them heavily. And so it's kind of, the play can be read, and I think there's benefit mm-hmm. possibly to this reading of as a kind of, um, not inverse, but a kind of warped Adam and Eve story of these two archetypal ma- male-female characters mm-hmm. who meet and are each other's undoing in a in a in this kind of way um unfortunately because the play is pretty much one-sided we end up with this version where lula is just the temptress and just mm-hmm. um you know the murderer of clay at the end with the um you know the silent passengers all backing her up in that last moment and clay you know stands alone and then is murdered for that and so Again, to go back to your point, Amy, that she is this kind of one-dimensional symbol of white oppression at the end or, you know, fundamental female wickedness or any of the other things that have been ascribed Mm -hmm. to Eve the Temptress over the course of history that people have been reading that story. Um, And that's one of the things that's really, uh, to use a loaded word, problematic and necessary to grapple with about this piece. Mm -hmm. Because it's really easy to just read it and go, that's, why why should we watch that? That's terrible. That doesn't give anybody. Right, right. It's hard. It's, and it's, I think that it is important to know going into this play that Amiri Baraka was a poet Mm. and was very much uh, inspired by the beat poets. He was, him and his wife published, they, Totem, Totem Press, Totem Press, they they started Totem Press and they started publishing Ginsburg and um, Jack Kerouac. And, and so seeing a play by a poet and somebody who comes from that, that world of like symbols and, and drawing on language, it, it makes more sense when you read the play to... I think that learning that Amir Baraka was a poet after I read the play um, changed my perspective entirely on it. And I, I don't want to say made it more okay, but definitely made it make sense. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and he's an interesting guy. Apparently, very controversial in his own time. He he is both controversial <laughs> then, and he continues to be controversial. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. Well, uh, yes, and he died a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. That's true. But, but yeah, I mean, he was 
famous and controversial and 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 I'm certainly not the first person to call him out for using a woman as a symbol or a tool. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I think that um you know, say what you will about the man mm-hmm. now. Um because you know, you can take it. You can take anybody and you can talk about what they did that was good, what they did that was bad. There are clearly some very problematic things both in his personal life and in some of the art that he produced. Mm-hmm. Um for those of you who are interested, please go read the Wikipedia page, but I don't want to <laughs> exhume this whole thing. I want to stay as close to the text as we can, because that's what y'all are here to listen to, and that's what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about the man's scandals and the scandals of his life. Yeah, I I just, it definitely feeds, like, it definitely informs the play, though. Mm. The, the, his, his history and where he's coming from definitely informs the play. And, I mean, he... he this play is very interesting as a standalone play without taking into account Amiri Baraka and his position because of all of the symbolism. And definitely it reflects... I, I'm just rambling now. Uh, I'm trying to get to the themes and the mood of the play, and I am rambling. And I apologize. Dear listeners. <laughs> but... And we've talked extensively on themes. You know, we we have Eve, and we have... It's all about... Clay's big explosion at the end. Well, let's let's talk about that big explosion Please. for a little bit. Uh, I can open the book. Here. Yeah, lovely. So we ha- we have the text right in front mm-hmm. of us. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting, particularly about that last moment, is um, one of the things I think Baraka is drawing from is this um, long history, specifically in American literature, of stories of black men and white women, which is a inherently Wrought pairing both in literature and in society. I was going to say, let's not leave out actual history and legal battles. Yeah, mm-hmm. which, which we've already touched on a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think is, um, so he's, he's first of all, when you see, especially in, when the play originally came out, to see a black man and a white woman on stage together in this kind of a scenario, as I think you already pointed out, is mm-hmm. it's inherently startling. It's inherently a little bit off-putting to a certain... Um, middle class, perhaps, sensibility, a little more conservative end of the spectrum. The blue hairs, yes, if you will. <laughs> if you will, if you will. Um, but what he's drawing from, and, you know, anyone who's read, who had to read To Kill a Mockingbird in middle school, mm-hmm. I think will understand kind of the, how, not necessarily how deep, but certainly the, like, cardinal example that we've decided is culturally the thing that we can draw from when we're talking about what this kind of issue is this idea that anytime you know a black man and a white woman are seen together in any kind of semi-romantic or potentially um sexual scenario there's always the implication of predator prey Mm -hmm. there's always the possibility that something is being exploited or is being exploitative about Mm -hmm. this scenario um clay even had Specifically, I think Clay has a line in his big speech at the end where he talks about how, you know, if he wanted to in this moment, he could he could strangle Lula for all the things that she said, all mm-hmm. the ways that she's needled and mocked him and put him down. And um, over the course of the story, implying also thematically, of course, that she is representative of um, white American society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And he is speaking on behalf of all downtrodden Black people, generally speaking. Um, But the idea of, to speak again about imagery, the idea of 
a black man strangling a white woman in the throes of passion. That that's a that has a deep cultural root both in American and English um, theater, drama, literature. Um, Othello and Desdemona, of course, mm-hmm. being one of the prime examples. Uh, Richard Wright's Native Son um, being another touchstone piece of literature, which Baraka definitely knew mm-hmm. and was definitely drawing I- on. Baraka was very, he didn't have a degree, but he went to a lot of, like, he was a very educated man. He Mm -hmm. went from Rutgers to Howard, Rutgers, Rutgers, Rutgers. He went from Rutgers to Howard to Columbia. And so I, it's impossible to think that he didn't know a lot of this, uh, a lot. I mean, he was a very educated person. So I, too. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, just to clarify, like he was a very educated man. Yeah. And so part of what I think that, and this this goes back to um, this idea that we were talking about earlier with, you know, the this ex- emotional explosion at the end that Clay gets to have, you know, because it's in that moment he's not just him. He's not just a man who has had to sit there on a train while, you know a white woman does a bad pantomime of African dance in front of him and in front of all of the white passengers on the train, mm-hmm. you know, laughing and applauding. He's every, he's a representative and a stand-in for all the oppression, all of the, you know, everything that a black man has had to suffer in America in order to be there, to and yet still have to sit there in his nice you know, three-button suit and tie on a sweltering New York subway and still be mocked and still be put down and eventually murdered. You know, mm-hmm. let's let's not sugarcoat it. That's Barack is very much saying that no matter how how good you are, no matter how nice your suit, no matter how respectable you try to be. No matter how white you act. No matter how white you act, at the end of the day, they're still gonna mock you, they're still gonna laugh at you, and at the end they're still gonna kill you. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful message. It becomes, again, I think we've talked about, it becomes problematized when the the vehicle of Clay's undoing, the vehicle of his destruction is, first of all, a white woman who has basically um, tempted him with sex into his undoing. Mm-hmm. And second of all is, again, a little bit problematized because it's this expression of um, righteous anger that is eventually Clay's undoing and what eventually leads to his murder. And to, you know, it's a, I think it's an open question what Barack is saying with that, whether it's, you know, it's the, if Clay had just stayed silent, would he still have been murdered? Mm-hmm. If he had, you know, if he had held it in just a little bit longer, could he have gotten to the end of this story in one piece? Um, so that's, it's a, you know, I think it's an open question whether or not it's that outburst specifically that leads to his death, but it's still, I think it's an it's an interesting question as to whether or not Barack is um, criticizing that expression itself or just generally the whole arc of that story. Interesting, so. because I definitely felt like the the play was saying, okay, you know, this white woman is here. She's tempting me. She's needling me. She's going from doting on me and being my friend uh, to yelling at me and punishing me and no matter what I do I always feel like I'm walking on eggshells around this woman 
and and it and it builds up until you can't take it anymore and you just have to let it out and and she was all along doing that so that she could be justified in killing him that she's using her privilege and her her sexual wiles and all of these different tools to get a reaction out of him that makes it okay for her to murder him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and you know, it's, I, I feel like that's like, that's something that needs to be talked about. You know, that's something that you need to feel. I definitely was reading this play and I thought, you know, this is a great way to, this is an interesting way to say something that needs to be said, but the use of the woman as the sexual object and and just like this the use of of a woman as a symbol to kind of drive that narrative made me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i don't want to say that that her character is not okay like we've talked about it i'm probably beating the dead horse like i don't want to say that that's not okay but i'm also like i also don't feel like we would have written this in 2018 and lauded it as you know amazing work an amazing work of activism you know yeah yeah no i can definitely see that um hmm what was i gonna say uh i was gonna say something uh oh that's what it was uh so um i think kind of bouncing off of off of that Let's, I wanted to talk about that the last little coda moment uh, that Please. happens in the play. Um, because after... So we've, ta- we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the lead-up and Clay's big explosion and the murder that happens right afterwards. But actually, that's not where the play ends. Mm-hmm. You would expect, you know, the murder of the main character, that's where the play would end. But no, mm-hmm. there's actually a little bit... There's a little bit extra at the end. Um, and what happens is that um, after Clay's body is disposed of by the nameless and faceless passengers who are also on this train with them. Um, Lula sits back down on the subway and um, another young black man enters the subway completely unaware of what has gone before, Mm -hmm. sits down in a different chair. They have kind of a a moment across the aisle Mm -hmm. where you're left intimating like, is the same thing going to happen again? Is it all just a cycle? Is it just how many times has she done this? You know, all those kinds of open questions. Meanwhile, a um, a black, uh, not conductor, but a but ticket taker. I, he is, he's, he's a conductor. Is he a conductor? He's a it's conductor. <laughs> um, he, Conductors, I'm sorry, conductor, I, as I have recently learned, is not the, the engineer is one thing. The conductor is the guy who takes your tickets. He's also the manager of the train. I have recently learned this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Learning something new every day. I love yeah. it. Um, so he, this conductor comes down, um, comes down the aisle and he's in a pretty, pretty blatant and kind of, you know, uncomfortable reference to uh, Bojangles and Minstrelsy mm-hmm. is, you know, doing kind of a soft chew and singing to himself the, uh, the same song that Lula earlier sang to Clay to kind of rile him up and make fun of him mm-hmm. as a kind of minstrel show that she put on earlier in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this this kind of, I think this last little piece really kind of helps us make sense of what it is that Barack is trying to do with this because there's, 
Clay, who has this enormous outburst, who threatens murder, who asserts mm -hmm. whatever power he has mm -hmm. in, the, in his final moments, is murdered and unceremoniously dumped off stage as quickly as possible. Right. Whereas this um, old man who has found a way to hum along mm -hmm. with the injustice and has found a way to kind of um, make himself invisible in the background and accept it as part of, you know, if you want to think about the subway car as a visual metaphor for the inherent power structures in America, mm -hmm. he's found a place for himself in it where he's useful and necessary, even though he's not, um, you know, reaching his full potential or mm -hmm. he's perhaps in some way um, adding or contributing to his own oppression, if you want to think about it that mm -hmm. way, he's still able at least to survive. Yeah. Whereas these, you know, Clay and potentially this um, other boy at the end. New Clay. Yeah, new Clay, whatever, whoever <laughs> he, he ends also up being. described exactly like Clay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they, because they're, you know, they're reaching out and they're trying for something better, they're pushing the boundaries of this established society, they are going to be chewed up and spat out mm -hmm. and cast aside. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, let's change gears. Okay. It's been heavy. Um, it's a heavy piece. It is. <laughs> it is. But piece. let's talk about the design because you're you're a sound designer. Mm -hmm. um, so and and I was uh, thinking about how to design a subway car and. And like, just, I don't know, it seems like it would be fun and exciting. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> but also the, the mood and the tone of the play are really dark. And, and subway cars are creepy. Just, just generally speaking. Just generally speaking. <laughs> so I don't know, what, what struck you? Uh, did it excite you? I think, I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities with this particular piece, especially because it's so... Um, expressive and minimalist mm -hmm. um we t there are a lot of moments in the stage directions where they talk about us we hear the sound of the train car we mm -hmm. hear the people but we don't see them the whole first half there's not supposed to be anybody else on stage right. but there are supposed to be some people who mm -hmm. come on or come off um so i think especially from a sound perspective there's a lot you can do with um the sound of wheels the sound of swaying um mm -hmm. again if you ever been on a new york subway it's not quiet mm -mm. there's constantly the sound of the of the wheels and the pistons and the car rocking back and forth and all the seats because nothing's really screwed down correctly and mm. everything's always creaking and coming apart and um you know i can't speak to the um how well maintained the subways were in 63 and 64 <laughs> but if they're anything like they are today you know things are covered in graffiti and they've mm -hmm. tried their best to keep them nice and they've done a good job but it's still you can it's like you can feel the grime coming mm -hmm. up and out from under I them. I don't want to say all public buses but 98% <laughs> of public buses are like that yeah um <laughs> And I feel like part of the, my biggest problem with this is I have been on a lot of public buses. I like taking the bus. But every once in a while, you get a man on a bus. And I don't want to go back to, like, the symbols and stuff. But every once in a while, I, I, there's a man on a bus who thinks that one thing is happening, you know? And he's got this idea of what's going on in the bus. And you're just trying to read your fucking book. <laughs> Uh, so I definitely felt like the location was important, mm -hmm. 
but also that maybe understanding what it's like to be a woman in a public bus situation. (laughs) I think there's there's definitely, you know, if to go back to your point about Mm -hmm. like, were were we to write this in 2018, would we laud it as a great piece of theatrical activism? Mm -hmm. And I think if you were writing this in 2018, you know, Clay would be a a black woman and Lula would be a white man. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the spin you would put on it a little bit. And it would mm-hmm. be, it wouldn't be, it would be about race, but it wouldn't be about, you know, it wouldn't be about a black man's rage at being constantly forced to fit into a white box. Mm-hmm. It would probably be about a woman who just wants to be left alone to read her book. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and I think that's, that's, that's a thread that I think, you know, connects this piece and what mm-hmm. made it important and revelatory at the time that it came out with yeah. the concerns that we're currently concerned with and should very much be concerned right, with. Right, because I don't feel like the themes and and plot of this play are just dis- have just disappeared, you know. Um, I don't feel like this is an, an irrelevant play, but I do see it and think like, oh, we're not thinking about women in this situation this is a man's world mm-hmm. so but uh the sound was interesting the lights i was excited by lights i love a good lighting direction mm-hmm. oh yeah just the with the const- uh, just with the the cars and the windows and that mm-hmm. kind of like dappled flash that happens yeah. as you move through things i definitely saw this as kind of like a horror almost mm. at the very beginning you know you get the the Flash, there, and there's a film of this, and I have not watched it, but all I can, you know, you see the flash of the woman, and you're kind of, he's kind of staring at her, and then she disappears. You're like, yeah, it's creepy, and it's horror, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, foreboding. And, <laughs> and especially because this, there's, there's such an interesting arc structurally with the play, mm-hmm. and I think design-wise you can really emphasize this, that it starts off in this kind of, like, creepy weird horror place and then we're in the story and it becomes kind of like it's it's more naturalistic and they're Mm -hmm. you know they're in this subway car and they're just talking and they're just sitting there just talking but there's something weird and uncomfortable about it a little bit and then we get to the end and it all kind of falls apart Mm -hmm. and we go into crazy horror film land again Mm -hmm. you know i think it's the there's something weird and uncomfortable about it especially because of the lighting and sound directions Mm. and the the invisibility of the passengers who are supposedly coming on and leaving and coming and leaving and coming um i think that that adds i don't know like it it seems to add a lot. Yeah, I would, absolutely. I, guess I, would not know. So, I, say, I had a great um, sound design uh, teacher actually, who said that um, you know you never you don't turn the lights off when you're doing mm-hmm. a theater play. The actors, the costumes stay on the whole time, so the sound should always <laughs> be happening. Maybe uh, well, the costume you're do- thing. <laughs> unless you're doing the vibrator play or you're doing hair, like for it specifically yeah. called for. But even then, the nakedness becomes a costume, so right. it's it's still there. Fair. Um, and so this idea that the sound should always be there because that's always part of the world, I mm-hmm. think, is really interesting. And in this play especially, this idea that all the while Clay and Lula are talking, you're constantly hearing, like, just a little bit of murmur or, um, you know, when – there's a lot of things I think you could do with when does the train come to a stop? How Are there sounds of people getting on and getting off? Mm-hmm. Does, you know, the announcer make a statement over the intercom or mm-hmm. anything? There's lots can of – Can you tell what he's saying? Can you tell? <laughs> you never can unless you specifically speak the language of um, subway operator. There's just no way you're going to be able to understand it. 
Um, but I feel there's a lot of stuff you can do with that is to, mm-hmm. first of all, set the mood, establish this semi-naturalistic world, and then to slowly warp that and to make mm-hmm. it more and more uncanny and uncomfortable as the story goes on. Because if you're, especially if you've been, as an audience member, if you're immersed in this world of subway car, if mm-hmm. you're immersed for like, you know, your ear gets accustomed to it, it kind of filters it out. It's like, oh yeah, those are the wheels and yeah, that's the people talking in the background and mm-hmm. oh yeah, we're stopping and that's the door coming up and out and people coming on and you just sort of turn it out. Mm-hmm. But if over the course of that, it's slowly... I don't know, you slowly shift the pitch or you add a little bit more reverb, you make mm-hmm. it sound more unearthly and weird and strange, then over the course, eventually the audience is going to, especially if you, you know, you lampshade it in any way, mm-hmm. then the audience is going to come back and be like, wait, when did we enter, you know... The Twilight Zone? Yeah, exactly, the Twilight Zone. <laughs> when did that happen? Mm-hmm. I was I was just on a subway car and now I'm in this weird, creepy place. I found myself, like, a good sound designer can change the theater's experience entirely. And I found myself in situations in in theaters where I have gotten tense or I've, like, gotten really uncomfortable and nothing has changed with any of the other, you know, and you just, like, the slow... It happens to me a lot with movies, and I understand that I'm more sensitive to this than a lot of people are, but, like, that slow tension or, like, when you know you're supposed to be scared and maybe you're in a big theater. Like, one E chord Mm -hmm. just, like, slowly vibrating. Yeah. Maybe I'm in a big theater watching The Shining for the first time, and I scream when it cuts to this shot that says Tuesday, and everybody's like, why did that girl scream? (laughs) You're like, it was a minor chord, and I was sure somebody was going to (laughs) die. Or, you know, and I... Maybe I'm just more sensitive to that than some people because I'll be working and I'll find myself stressed out and freaking out. And I don't know why because nothing else is happening. But somebody's playing uh, music with a really heavy bass Mm. and I like I just can't handle it. (laughs) So maybe that's more me than anybody else. But I definitely see sound as something that can make or break uh, a good play, especially something like this, which is all atmosphere. Yeah. Very minimalistic, very, Mm -hmm. you you see very little, but you have to feel so much over the Mm -hmm. course of it, so. How do you feel about symbolism, personally, as a person? Just personally? Um, So I, I feel like with so much in theater, there is a place for it and there's a place Mm -hmm. not for it. I feel like there's times where it works really, really effectively, and there are times where it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like symbolism is a lot harder in theater than it is in, say, a novel. Because when you're reading a novel, um, you have time to sit there with the, you know, the abstracted ideas of something and just Mm -hmm. really marinate in them and kind of like live in it for a while. Like if you're reading A Hundred Years of Solitude uh, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for example, that's that's a 300 page book where everything means something different from what it means on the page. Mm -hmm. And everything is laden with all this atmosphere and all this stuff and, you know. And you can really understand it if you take uh-huh. that time. But when you're sitting in a theater, it's because you have to, you're moving along and you're mm-hmm. trying to live in that moment and you've only got an hour and a half, two hours to kind of live in that place. You don't have the time to unpack everything. And I think that's one of the places where designers especially have a lot, can do a lot of work and help the audience along to kind of 
put all this stuff in the background. I feel like if you talk to any, you know, good set designer, mm-hmm. um, they'll say things like, oh, yeah, there's one line in the play about this one thing. So I put 15 things in the backdrop <laughs> that you won't notice because you're not, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. But if you went and looked, you would see that all of these things are thematically related and they all draw out these various threads that are there in the script. Um, and so I think that can, it's just, it may be subliminally there, mm-hmm. but you're not going to appreciate it fully unless you're really sitting there with it for an extended time and you can't really do that in theater so it's right. it's a it's a tricky balance i feel like and the next make. time you come back to this play it's going to be a completely different production yeah. with a completely different and part of why i you know you i you go and see shakespeare over and over and over again is cuz there's so much inside of it um and and everybody's got this like one little thing that that they were like, didn't didn't anybody else notice this? Didn't anybody else notice that in, you know, the Merry Wives of Windsor, all they're talking about is seafood. It's really weird. They talk about seafood so freaking much. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, there's a lot of people who are looking very closely at, at Shakespeare, and and it's it's hard to do that with a lot of plays mm. because, you know, there's a lot of Shakespeare around, but nobody's doing... Dutchman over and over and over again and the 60s had so much symbolism in it yeah they were in love with symbolism (laughs) that's true that's true you know there's um there's a lot of talk I think um about you know especially in our like our fantasy image that we have Mm -hmm. of the 60s and the early 70s this idea that like you know everybody went to India and everybody was obsessed with psychedelics and everybody Mm -hmm. was trying to expand their consciousness as much as possible um which I don't think was real but it's like (laughs) at least you know when we all sit down and watch across the universe and that's the image we have of what Mm -hmm. it was like um so this idea that everyone wanted to you know take as much meaning out of any single everyday object. The fact Mm -hmm. that, you know, in this play particularly, there can be like a red apple that we follow through the whole story. And it's, (laughs) it's just so laden with purpose and intent and every, everything is. Desire. Exactly. It's just. This apple is. It's just so much (laughs) the whole time. Um, You know, like it's, it's never just a river. It's never Mm -hmm. just a cigar. You know, Freud is just baked into everything. Right. um, And you can't escape it. So it's. I, so I don't know if you read Is God Is. I know that you listened to the podcast that I did last month with Jordan. Um, But Is God Is was also written by a poet. It is also a very symbolic play but i feel like it's more modern i mean it's definitely more modern it was written in 2016 Mm. this was written in 1963 but (laughs) i feel like the thing that makes it more modern is that on top of or underneath all of the actual actors and characters and you have language and and action and underneath everything uh, is the layer of symbolism. Like, it's there, but it's not necessary. And I feel like maybe as a theater community, we've come to this point where we're saying, well, we have to have something on top, you know? We have to have some cream for our... I, w- that metaphor fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, maybe... I don't know... Because this this symbolic play where everybody's... I don't know, the 60s, I just imagine people in turtlenecks beating drums and doing 
um, interpretive dance and having five lines of beat poetry and, and everybody snapping to everything. and everybody's snapping to everything, which they still do in slam poetry slams. Um, but yeah, I just feel like we've kind of we took that and and incorporated it into our consciousness as a theater community. Well, I and, think, or, and we should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think, and I think that's definitely true. I think that part of what's 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 interesting about theater history generally is this idea of like. What's in vogue? What's out of vogue? Mm -hmm. And how do we incorporate the things? You know, it's very Hegelian, this idea that we take Mm -hmm. from the past and we incorporate the best of it and then um, move forward and try to keep what worked before but get rid of what didn't. And I think this this period that um, Baraka was writing in, it was a time, you know, with, as you said, Ginsburg and Kerouac and all the Mm -hmm. other beat poets and writers, this idea that everything was highly symbolized and very abstract and no one was just a person. Everyone had to represent 15 other things. Um, (laughs) And then we kind of moved away from that and we realized like, well, that was cool that we all like went down that road and like explored in that weird symbolist cul-de-sac for a while. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people kind of want a story with characters that they can follow and empathize with (laughs) and that are three-dimensional and they can also symbolize stuff and that's cool that they also symbolize stuff because that adds a nice... Mm-hmm. a deeper layer to everything and it makes us feel like we're connecting to something you know whether you want to go the Jungian route and say that we're all plugged into the same cultural like unconscious <laughs> that draws from similar archetypes or mm-hmm. you want to talk about Joseph Campbell and this idea that there are certain stories that everybody's heard so many times that they resonate with us on a specific level or if you just want to say that eh, it's you know it's just cool to talk about <laughs> symbols being connected to higher stuff like whatever you know whatever floats your boat on that mm-hmm. issue but this idea that we've kind of taken it and sublimated and made it a strand within the work that we're doing, but it's not this kind of um, heavy main theme in the way that it was, especially in this play and in, I think plays of a, the similar period in time. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's these are these are people who grew up watching the modernist movement, and I mean. I, all I can think of is like Ubu Roy and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, which is a lot of those modernist things, plays, manifestos. It It's weird and it means something, but it's also not there for your entertainment. I can talk about modernism all, all day long. I obsessed over it in college. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I think we I'm I'm exhausted talking about <laughs> I think we've exhausted this play <laughs> it was it was fun it was nice meeting you Ben yeah you as yeah. well Amy thanks All for right. having me thank you uh-